on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. We exist right now in a culture that is so identified with gender, with physical gender, so much so that things are getting very complex right now. One of the most important things, if not the most important thing, is to ensure that regardless of our gender, that we find both our feminine and our masculine relatable, relatable. It's the relatability which incites influence. If I don't feel relatable to my feminine, it's likely I'm going to exaggerate my masculine. And then we can see it the other way around. Uh, perhaps if, if gendered women don't find their masculine relatable, they will exaggerate their feminine. If something's exaggerated, that means something else is in neglect. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Keoni Hanale, founder of Pohala, purveyor of esoteric Hawaiian fern medicine. Keoni caught my attention through his Instagram, where he shares profound perspectives rooted in the Mu teachings of ancient Hawaii. In our conversation today, we speak about his own upbringing under the guidance of his grandmother and his rediscovery and cultivation of fern medicine. Keoni shares his understanding of gender and right relationship advocating for the cultivation of intimacy within and without. And finally, he speaks of teachings that have bolstered his courage to participate in this time of great change with authenticity and beauty. An invitation before we begin. Please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. I don't accept advertising and rely on listeners like you to fund the show. You'll get access to exclusive perks, including behind-the-scenes updates, bonus interviews, and more. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to join. And now, enjoy my conversation with Keone Hanale. Welcome, Keone, to the show. Aloha. Um, such a pleasure to be here with you and this audience, Ian. Hmm. I'd love to start my episodes by asking the guests to share a little of where they are in this moment, uh, you know, geographically, spiritually, anything they feel called to just help the listener attune and, and me, you know, in this moment to you. Oh, well, um, I am currently in the position of Maui in the Hawaiian Islands. We call Kohava Ipai Aina. My relatives, my ancestors have lived here for thousands of years, and I come from a lineage that spans 1,017 generations. And we preserve our lineage in something that we call an olihelu, and it's a genealogical chant. And in this chant, uh, we know the names, we know the placements, and we know different characteristics of our relatives. And so my current placement in Hawaii is uh, also a legacy of my entire lineage. And the work that I do and the work that I share, uh, possibly what we will discuss today, um, is all very relevant to Hawaii, Hawaiian culture, and specifically what we call Mu Hawaiian, which is archaic Hawaiian culture. 
Beautiful. I'm very excited by this conversation. <laughs> and one of the reasons is because I I just love to connect with particularly guests, uh, you know, of indigenous language and heritage and and insight that is and, and the willingness to offer it in such a generous way. So I just want to offer gratitude to you to being here and the way that you've shared on social media in particular and and your own you know, podcast and uh, your own teachers, you know, that have granted that to you. Um, and just to tune the listener that this is a, a real gift to be here to, to speak with you on these matters. Uh, it's and it's such an honor. And thank you so much for speaking into the availability and the willingness to share. Uh, I really, truly believe that we are in a time of great disclosure. And so a lot of indigenous people such as myself of the Muhoin uh, lineage, uh, we are showing up to start to reveal and to disclose a lot of these traditions and the Ike, as we say in the language or the knowledge that really is a for all humankind. The, the thing about even when we uh, talk into the spirit of aloha, um, aloha itself is not a possession. It is purposed to be shared and then to be clarified. Beautiful. Thank you for bringing the spirit of aloha here. I wonder if we could start with your uh, pohala, which I understand is your, you know, your body of work or your, your offerings. You know, I'm almost hesitant to say, what does it translate to versus like, what is the, what is the function or what is the um, consequence of, of that understanding and why you've chosen it to represent your, yeah, your body of work? Mm, I love that. <laughs> I love that you brought in function too. That's such a masculine word. And <laughs> yes, the function of, of pohala, of this entity, this essence. Uh, pohala means to wake from stupor. And just like I was saying in correlation to a lot of indigenous peoples now coming out and sharing a lot of the Ike, the knowledge, um, I believe this is a great time for many of us to awake from that stupor. And we can specifically correlate the stupor to amnesia. And many of us are simply just by trial and error, just oh, hosting the knowledge that we know that has been handed down to us. Some of us, it's the knowledge that we are hosting because we are channels to things that are being reactivated in us. Mm -hmm. And so Pohalo is really birthed uh, in my own awakening and my own realization that I have something to share. And it takes this kind of courage to become exposed in that. And I say courage because we do live in a world where scrutiny and challenge and ridicule and condemnation is something that's very prevalent and which has caused many of us to become subordinate and to imitate. And I did the imitation game for a majority of my life. Um, and I always ended up in that same kind of aspect of just agony or inadequacy. And it became so unbearable that I said, you know what, I'm just going to try something else. I'm just going to be exposed in what I know to be true and honest for myself. And luckily, I have the support of this lineage that has bestowed a legacy. And that's what I've been doing ever since my own pohala, my own awakening from stupor and just being in the experience of it. You share a beautiful story on your website there around the impact of your grandmother, I believe, uh, on your own. Uh, introduction or intimacy with plant allies, you know, I hesitate to say spirits, like, but perhaps that's true, but I'd love for you to share a little of that, you know, in your own maybe initial time of formation that you grew to have this bridge, right. With these beings, with the, with the support of your uh, grandmother as a medicine carrier, I understand. Yes. My grandmother is what is my grandmother's name is Kawiki Onalani. 
And uh, if we translate that name, Kawike Onalani, it means the knowledge that comes from the cosmos. And my grandmother really embodied that. And in the Hawaiian culture, uh, we have a really cool way to penetrate amnesia. And that is that our names are coded with our kiakahi or our purpose. And many of us who come into a world of form, it's so shocking to come into a world of form that we experience the glitch and that glitch is called amnesia. So we kind of wander around like, why, why am I here? Uh, because we've forgotten our kiakahi, our purpose. And in the Hawaiian language, uh, in Hawaiian culture, we code our names with our purpose. And my grandmother's name is Kawike Onalani, which means the intelligence of the cosmos. My, I was really blessed to have a maka'ula or a mystic as my grandparents who also became my primary caregiver upon birth. And it wasn't because my parents were not adequate caretakers. It's because I experienced uh, a tradition, a ritual in my culture called hanai. And hanai is a kind of formal adoption where a child is given to either another family member or to another family altogether for two very different reasons. One is to either form an alliance or an allegiance, or the other is to uh, code that child with the mo'okuauhau or the lineage. And so I was uh, offered to my grandmother, who was the mystic, the maka'ula, so that I could be coded with my family's uh, legacy, our lineage. And so for the first five years of my life, I, I always like to share that the first five years of my life was just one beautiful, long ceremony, mm. because that's really how my grandmother conducted herself. That was the method of, of who she was. She was in a ceremony. And so in the process of learning my lineage and the rituals and the traditions of my lineage and of the Hawaiian people and the Mu Hawaiian people, it was all done in ceremony. And so I really credit my grandmother, Kawike Onalani, uh, for instilling in me the courage to reclaim my own kiakahi, my purpose. I love what you said to the, the phrase penetrate amnesia. <laughs> that's, yes. that's such a, a beautiful phrase. Um, along with that wisdom of actually encoding purpose within one's name. So I, you know, I have the same image or understanding that it's like, then it's hard to forget, right? Because if you're reminded all the time, every time somebody uses your name, it's like, oh yeah, it's this constant stirring awake, so, you know, stirring awake just in the ways of being with each other. Absolutely, Ian. And, you know, that's also the, the, primary way that we proclaim ourselves is by proclaiming our name. And so simultaneously, we're proclaiming our purpose, we're broadcasting it. What would you say is the distinction if there is between one's life purpose or one's, you know, like calling in a sense, you know, because I, I think of other people that say, you know, you got to find your purpose. It's a sort of a modern, you know, malaise that there is this constant sense of trying to find one's purpose. Whereas it seems to me that in an intact culture, it's the it's the grandmothers, the grandfathers, or the, you know, the medicine carriers that are, they bestowed upon you because they see it. Maybe they saw you grow up right from a little being. And so they're like, Ooh, you know, they see these qualities. Like it's not self-determined, it seems to me, or not fully. Is that the case? I feel that it's more of a reclamation of one's purpose. Uh, and that's why I like to uh, resource that word amnesia, uh, because it's really a reclamation. And then everything that I do in my life, and I have four aspects of life that I, I reference situations, circumstances, environments, and interactions. 
all of those complement the reclamation of my purpose. Mm. Beautiful. I might get into that a little later. Um, I understand around five, you were, you, you left that, you know, the, the medicine ceremony of your youth and shifted into a whole other environment. And what was the consequence of that? Yeah. And this is also part of the tradition. At a certain age, you are gifted back to your biological parents. And it's, I, I liken it to this. In the Amish community, they have the rumspringa, where they, before they become baptized, they have that ability to go out and seek the world and see and, and offer their own consent as to what they will uh, devote and dedicate their lives to. And it's quite similar to the Hanai, where I was gifted back to my parents. My parents lived a very different life from my grandmother. They were very Western. And so um, I was exposed to a very different world that was not comprised of ceremony. And what I observed in this world that was outside of ceremony was that it had a lot to do with imitation and performance. Mm -hmm. And I learned really quickly that in order to belong, to this world, I had to learn how to imitate and I had to learn how to perform. And I did for a majority of my childhood, for uh, many years in my adulthood, until I reached to that point of breaking or what I like to call that maximum point of trauma, mm -hmm. where you really have to make a decision. <laughs> uh, and ultimately, for some of us, Ian, it's that extreme decision. Will I stay or will I go? And we see that so, so prevalent. And I am referring to suicide. We see that so prevalent in today's culture. And when I decided to stay, I knew that I must dedicate myself to my kiakahi, my purpose. So I had to uh, reinforce, reinstate that kiakahi. I had a little bit of help because what happened was when I decided to stay, uh, I became available for support. I became available for a, a token of uh, any way to allow me to reorganize myself. And reorganizing yourself can be really easy when you're at the lowest of lows, <laughs> when you don't even care about performing anymore because you just penetrated all of that as well. And the vision I had when I said I'm available to be inspired to reclaim my purpose, I had a vision of my grandmother's hands. And they're open and they're pointing towards me. And that's poetic. So poetically, I translated that. I said, what does this mean? What did my grandmother offer me? Ah, she offered me the ike, the knowledge. That's my purpose. That's what I'm going to share. And so ever since then, my life has changed. I am no longer part of the imitation game. Uh, performing is no longer as interesting to me. Rather, just showing up in the integrity of my purpose and being exposed in it, withstand the scrutiny, the challenges, and just maintain. That's a beautiful story. I understand you you contacted, well, I, it's called Fern Medicine, or at least that's how you reference it uh, here. And, and it seems like it's, yeah, part of your body of work. Also, your uh, the botanicals or, or you know, the, the, the offerings that you do now through wild foraging. And I wonder if you might speak to that as well. Yes, yeah, so... Uh, something that we find in that uh, that Oli Helu that I referred to earlier, uh, that genealogical chant. When we go back 1,017 generations to what we call the con the contemporary founder, and I got to clarify that we say contemporary founder because our history is so extensive 
that even 20,000 years ago is considered contemporary. <laughs> so the founder of the contemporary lineage, Mahat, uh, Mahat uh, uh, holds a story called Pua Ehu Ehu, and that's fern medicine. A couple of cool things about this is that because this shows up in a chant that goes back 20,000 years to 18,000 BC, this is pre-Paleolithic era, uh, and it is defined as a type of plant medicine. This makes Pua Ehu Ehu Fern Medicine one of the oldest plant medicines known to man. Uh, Pua Ehu Ehu Fern Medicine is all about human emotions. We have 103 native Hawaiian ferns that correlate to 103 human emotions coded in the spores of these ferns are the primordial pristine codes of human emotions you and i are experiencing an electrical experience that's what form is all about many have translated 3d as a world of contrast it's a world of contrast and this contrast is comprised of the electrical experiences that we are experiencing and one of the greatest impetus and stimulants and stimulators of the electrical experience is our emotions. So fern medicine is all about emotions. Mm. Wow. Now I'm fascinated by this because I've also done previous episodes on this podcast, you know, essentially speaking to what feels like a general ask or call or plea, but for men in particular, right in the uh, sort of dominant culture to become more, you know, available, emotionally available, emotionally attuned, emotionally expressive. And so I wonder is the fern, medicine that you're offering is that the the function in a sense to to imbibe or to be with that it, it invokes more capacity for emotional capacity or or i'm curious how does what's the relationship between those yeah and i, I would like to put it this way because you you said one key word and that's availability and that's one to be available uh and then also the other is to be uh to resource it to learn how to resource the emotions, to learn how to work with the emotions. Our emotions are incredible resources because they're so stimulating. And so once we understand the true components of an emotion and what kind of a stimulant it can offer, then we know how to participate and collaborate with it. Mm. This is a very deep vein, which I'm very excited to go down. Um, and one thing I wanted to reference now is basically the reason why I, I decided to reach out. I, I've been following your work for some time. I can't remember how I initially, you know, found some of your Instagram posts, but I've deeply appreciated the, yeah, the quality of the the poetry and the insights, you know, that were shared, uh, as well as this particular one, this particular post, which I'll just read your caption, uh, because this is also connected a lot with the bo other body of work that I've been exploring. But in the caption on Instagram, you wrote, "We good men." become sensual and a thousand wars go dark yeah and you know again this this to me is like the deep vein of i think where we'll head but what i'd love to just open that begin to open that conversation is could you speak to the inspiration and that picture right of course it looks like you perhaps somewhere in the lava fields or, or some you yes. know somewhere uh naked in a way that i would consider to be yeah like a a, a sensual quality right of the image uh, and that caption. So I would just love to feel or to hear the inspiration. You know, what was that for you and connected to as we enter this part of the conversation? Mm, thank you for sharing that. And uh, of course, correlating to the human emotions. Uh, for me, when I feel into sensuality, it is a relaxation into our emotions. Mm. And this is one of the, the greatest uh, 
dreams, wishes I have for my brothers is that we allow ourselves to relax into our emotions, to no longer be suspicious of our emotional experience. Because once again, when we can relax into it, we know how to resource it. This is how we truly become indestructible, indestructible, spiritually indestructible. We are all on a path we call hala or ascension. There's going to be a lot of distractions along the way. And if we cannot relax into our electrical experience, learn how to resource our emotions, the distractions are going to become more interesting than our own ascension. That's a problem. When you say ascension as well, you know, I, I sometimes relate that to what can be a, like a spiritual bypassing, right? This kind of up and out in a way and you know, like essentially the opposite of embodiment. Uh, and, but I don't think that's quite what you're saying here, but, but you know, I'd love for you just to unpack a little bit when you say ascension. Yeah. Well, how do you, how do you understand that? Yes, my brother, for me, ascension means completion, hmm. completion. We are here in the human event an agreement we have made. We host a kiakahi, a purpose, which is first to be integrated, understood, and then proliferated as a contribution, which is indicative of a completion. And, you know, I, I share this often, but in the spiritual community, one of the things that I have noticed in, in the spiritual community is that not a lot of things are being completed. Uh, perhaps because of this bypassing, but there doesn't seem to be a true dedication. And I understand the disruption. It's possibly because we're imitating other people's methods of completion. Mm. We're not truly versed or fluent in it. And so there's always an insecurity. Am I doing it right? What's next? I don't know what I'm doing. I feel inadequate. Until one finally locates their own kiakahi, their own purpose, it becomes definitive. There's now an objective. This is called intellectual thinking. Intellect means objective thinking. Uh, one of the greatest things about intellect is that we're not being buried by the feeling of things. Mm -hmm. If I'm buried by the feeling of things, I'm likely going to become paralyzed. And then I'm going to be incapable of completing something. So we can bring in that intellect. What is the objective? The goal, whatever this experience is to whomever, let's complete it. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. You know, you, you there's a couple of threads there too. I'm, I'm going to loop back on going back to your Instagram post as well, right? You, the first part you said, we good men, we good men become sensual. And the second part is really interesting, right? And you say, and a thousand wars go dark. Yeah. Right. So what is the connection between that, you know, sort of awakening sensuality and the ending of war or war culture? You know, yes. I'm curious to hear about that. Thank you so much. And I, I really love how you have the skill to just go into something uh, that can be seemingly <laughs> just so short and then find the deeper meaning. Or in the culture, we say the kauna, the kauna. There's a deeper meaning to all things. Um, it's the relaxation, which uh, allows us to no longer be so suspicious, defensive, where we can begin to now negotiate. And I really feel like that's the antidote to war and war culture is for us to finally begin to negotiate. But in a proper negotiation, it's not only about one clarifying and being clear about who and what they are. It's also about remaining present for the response to that. 
And then also holding the space and hosting the space for others to clarify who and what they are. There is this scramble for so many of us to attempt to define and to tell people who they are. And I always say it like this, Ian, before you tell me who I am, perhaps you should ask me. I have no problem clarifying. And that's also how I approach my brothers and my sisters. I'm not going to rely on assumptions. I would like for you to clarify. And it's really shocking to me because when I have incorporated this in like my basic life, uh, it's really uh, kind of shocking that many people don't know how to respond to that because we're so used to people identifying us for our, for us. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it's because there's this fear of not being liked. Well, we, we don't want to be rejected. So we kind of just uh, allow ourselves to be identified in certain ways so that we can feel that we belong. And I want to say that in order to belong, one must clarify why they belong. Hmm. Interesting. I'd love for you to tease that out a little more. Yeah. To, what does it mean to clarify that one belongs? Yes. Cause now we're getting into Kiakahi purpose because once we can proclaim our purpose, we say, I belong because I host this gift. This is what I'm skilled at. There's confidence. And so the sensual masculine is also confident. It's not interested in performing. It's not so careful about how it's being perceived. It's saying I'm here. I have a gift. I have something I want to contribute And I have no problem being clear about what that contribution is. At the same time, I understand that you perhaps have a contribution and I am your captive audience. Please teach me how to love you. Teach me how to honor you. I no longer want to rely on assumptions to love or honor you. It's not working. It's called war culture. Hmm. Hmm. You brought up war culture as well. That, you know, connects to me uh, on the previous episodes of the podcast, I interviewed uh, an author, Rianne Eisler. You might've heard her book, but she wrote The Chalice and the Blade, among other things. Mm. Uh, yeah, as well as she's written extensively now on what she calls partnership cultures. Uh, you know, she distinguishes between, in, in terms of historical record and present, uh, the qualities of uh, domination culture, right? Which is so much of what we see. And another term, I think, could be war culture. And then partnership culture, which I see as a culture of exactly what you just described. It's like an engaged curiosity. It's negotiation. It's intimacy. And you actually used a really beautiful articulation in an episode of your own podcast on, uh, I think it was right relationship between the masculine and feminine, of which, you know, part of me just wants to cut and just go right to that whole episode, which is, you know, only 20, 25 minutes or something. But it was like a masterclass in articulating like a lot of really key points that um, I would love to get into some of them here. But just even saying that right relationship is intimacy. I believe that is what you spoke to. And for me, how I would translate that just on my own experiences, uh, we don't have to get into this too deep, but there's a community in Portugal I've been studying for seven years, uh, making a film about them. And they have a phrase called contact, to be in contact. Mm -hmm. And so how you described intimacy, I was like, oh, that's exactly how I understand to be contact as the function of essentially, you know, coming into right relationship. So I'd love to, yeah, start getting into a bit of this now, you know, in terms of this dance between the masculine and feminine. Ah, yes. Mahalo. And thank you for your support in the podcast, Ian. I, I want to f- first preface by saying I am a gender male, but I am 100% masculine and I am 100% feminine. Oftentimes people, you know, they make that, that kind of like uh, that joke or that fun inquiry Oh, if you had a superpower, what would it be? And my response is, I do have a superpower. It's called energetic androgyny because I do not play favorites. I want to I share it like this. Uh, my feminine component 
is the noun of who I am. It's the noun. Feminine is noun-based. Uh, it, it is the sense of being. That's why the feminine has oftentimes been correlated as the homeostasis. And we even see this in the brain glands. We have the hypothalamus, which is the, the space of homeostasis, and that's very feminine. And then we have this beautiful masculine energy, which is the verb. The verb, it is the action. And then we can also correlate this to the brain glands and say, okay, that's the thalamus. What is the function of the thalamus? The thalamus distributes that homeostasis, distributes. It's the action of it. And, and if I may, Ian, share my understanding of my feminine and my masculine. My feminine is my leader. My feminine is my leader. Let me tell you my understanding of what a leader is. A leader is one who knows how to delegate, delegate. Now, a leader is not one who just does everything on their own. That's more like a tyrant. <laughs> a leader is one who can identify the greatest qualities in all and extract it so that there's community and collaboration. That's one of the great skills of the internal feminine. Once again, I don't care what gender you are. It's one of the greatest skills of our internal feminine. That's what makes a leader. Now, the masculine, my masculine is a hero, a hero. What distinguishes a hero? A hero is that which creates a result. It takes the instructions given by that leader who has delegated the highest qualities, it takes those instructions, incites a momentum, a movement, produces a result. That's what makes a hero. And we can see what are the structures of our life right now? What are the structures of my life? Do I live in quality? If I don't live in quality, where's my hero? Where's my hero? If we look on a collective level and we see, okay, war is really loud right now. That's the structure that we are building as a collective, where is the hero? Mm. It's interesting too, because when you hear, when I hear hero, at least when a, a kind of contemporary deconstruction of that term, um, there's, there's challenge with uh, a sort of, you know, patriarchal or like overly masculine representation or frame. I mean, I'll just use an example. Uh, and I'm actually a bit curious how you think of this movie, but uh, the movie, uh, with uh, Maui, like the character Maui, right? Moana, of course, that's the movie uh, where I believe The Rock, Dwayne Johnson plays Maui in that film. But he kind of is this bumbling character that actually sets in motion the goddess, you know, losing her heart uh, and it kind of toxifies the land because he's the hero is actually the one that, you know, caused all the problems. And so I, I hear you actually going about it differently in this, which I'm really intrigued by, right? That this sort of more contemporary understanding that the, the hero is the problem as like a single agent acting for glory, right? Versus something else that you're talking to, which is this kind of enactor of, of consequence, but with the right orientation from the feminine. I think that's what I'm hearing. Yes, that's correct, Ian. It is the right orientation because we can even see this, this goddess Tafiti in this movie. Let's keep on that. Um, perhaps there was a kind of betrayal because the masculine was not receiving proper instruction. It was not open. It was not receptive to the proper instructions until the time to which it receives the proper instructions by way of the delegation of the leader, which is the feminine. And then the result is of the highest quality. In your, in your episode there, where you spoke about this, you did speak to, or you actually offered a meditation um, around visualizing. And yeah, I wonder if you might offer 
that here around the, you know, the place where each of these resides in oneself? I would love to because uh, we, we exist right now in a culture that is so identified with gender, with physical gender, so much so that things are getting very complex right now. And so what I like to do is I like to ensure one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, is to ensure that regardless of our gender, that we find both our feminine and our masculine relatable, relatable. It's the relatability which incites influence. If I don't feel relatable to my feminine, it's likely I'm going to exaggerate my masculine. And then we can see it the other way around. Uh, perhaps if, if gender women don't find their masculine relatable, they will exaggerate their feminine. If something's exaggerated, that means something else is in neglect. So what I love to do is first, let's you and I in this audience visit our internal feminine. Remember, regardless of what gender we are, we are 100% feminine and 100% masculine. If we could all just close our eyes in the culture the feminine is located in our sacral. For men, we can feel that as our hara, the womb space. In the culture, we call this the na'o. And this is the enteric brain. We have two brains. We have the logical analytical brain, which is very masculine, but we also have this enteric brain, our gut brain, which governs our emotions. So let's now just place ourselves and we can place both hands on our na'o. Now, let's pardon all these visions. When we bring the feminine entity into our field, let's pardon all these tendencies to visualize a gendered anatomical woman. Let's bypass that. Let's penetrate that. Let's no longer find that as interesting. As we go further and further into this space, internal gaze into the na'au, affirming the presence of our feminine and the availability of the revelation of our feminine, something else is going to happen and there's going to be a color. A color is going to start to emerge and present itself. Now, any tendencies to scrutinize this color to question this color, let's pardon that as well. Let's just allow this color to absorb us. Let's welcome our feminine into this space in its presentation. And for me, at this very moment, my feminine is coming through in this really beautiful emerald green. Ian, what kind of color is coming through for you? It's a radiant yellow. Radiant yellow and emerald green coming through. We've just located, if we need to identify our feminine as anything, let's identify it as such. For Brother Ian, it is this beautiful yellow. For me, it is this emerald green. Now it's becoming relatable. I belong. I belong and my feminine belongs. Hmm. And we're coding ourselves with this. This becomes more interesting than any exterior translation of what feminine means or looks like. Now I'll ask that we all lift our hands now to our heart. This is the natural throne of the masculine. In the culture, we call this pu'uvai. Pu'uvai. Pu'uvai means the well of all. 
And in this space, let's now call forth our masculine, our masculine. Perhaps for many of us, the first thing that comes through is the vision of a gendered anatomical male. Let's pardon that. Let's pardon that. Let's penetrate that translation. Let's go further into the heart. Let's become absorbed into that heart space beyond all false translations. And as we bring forth our masculine, the energy of the hero perhaps will begin to feel the glow of a light, of a tone, of a color. As this is coming through for me, I'm feeling and I'm seeing this deep purple. Deep, deep royal purple. Brother Ian, if there's anything that's coming through for you, could you share? Mm. It's a deep blue. Deep blue and deep purple. These are the apparitions of the eternal masculine for Brother Ian and I and those of you listening. Just so that we can proclaim it, so that we can establish it, I will encourage the audience to vocally say that out loud, whatever color is coming through. Let's proclaim it. At this moment, the masculine has become even more relatable to all of us because now we have penetrated this false translation of what the masculine must be into perhaps its true form which at this current moment in its contemporary form is this beautiful color. And we can consciously code ourselves with this to keep these two colors close to us as we engage, participate, and hold counsel with these energetic centers, with the objective of right relation, intimacy, co-partnership, complete admiration and completion. And in any ceremony or meditation in the culture, we utter three times. And if everyone will utter with me, please. Aloha ma. Aloha ma. Aloha ma. Now, aloha ma means self-reflective love. When we have created that intimacy, we really arrive at what is known as the holistic self. Here's something really cool about something that is holistic. And in the New Age culture, we hear holistic thrown out all the time. And it's so interesting because I'll ask many people, can you define what holistic is? Crickets. <laughs> so let's clarify what holistic is. Holistic means that no part is explicable without referencing the whole. That's androgyny. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you for that meditation, brother. Um, yeah. You know, what, what came up for me too is, you know, recognizing that you've named this, um, on the one hand, observing what is going on out there in the culture at large, which you know is is seems like just a deep suspicion, a deep war between men and women, uh, and even of course folks that don't fit in that spectrum, as well that as as casualties of this yeah this kind of cultural warfare, uh, and the way through just seems like 
there's this constant one-upping, you know, that seems to be trying to happen. And yet it, it just seems like the incorrect way to go about it. Or maybe I could say it seems like mutually traumatized way to go about it, right? Seems to be the case. And yet whenever I look at, let's say, pathways or speak with sort of folks that are sort of speaking to pathways to coming back into right relationship, to me, it always seems like it's it's the prescription written by the wound, right? Mm-hmm. That that there's this power over dynamic, right? That seems to be that'll, you know, that'll balance things. It's like now women need to be on top or in often case, women need to act like men in domination culture, mm-hmm. right? That's often the prescription that's written. And yet uh, when I talk to indigenous guests that have an intactness to their understanding often, one, they'll often not universalize and just say, you know, everybody needs to be like this. They're like, well, you know, this is what we do. This is, this is you know, how I've learned. Uh, and the way that you speak of um, the frame of how to approach what does it mean to be in right relationship seems vi- it's vitally important because it's coming from an actual lineage-based understanding, you know, thousands, thousands of years old versus a kind of, you know, wounded quick fix, I should say. So that's what I just want to speak to is like that, that capacity to understand appreciation as the gateway to right relationship. I would just love to spend a bit more time there and in, in how that, you know, comes forth for you. Oh, wow. So beautifully spoken, Ian. And I agree with you, my brother. Um, competition is mutually traumatizing for both sides. So why do we do it? And competition can be fun when it's done uh, uh, as amusement, but it has surpassed amusement. And this is really how many of us conduct our lives all day is in competition, even in the gender aspect of it. And it is mutually traumatizing until we can go into a space of mutual admiration. Mutual admiration for me arrives when I truly see someone for their qualities And when I see someone for their qualities, oftentimes by the other person clarifying that, so I don't have to rely on assumptions. I'm not going to approach someone already in competition. I'm approaching someone to learn how to love you. So when someone teaches me how to love them, I go into rapid admiration. And all I want to do is assist in the extraction of those qualities. Because I trust also that that person, once I clarify my qualities which could be my purpose, that that person is present to assist in the extraction of that. That's that that co-collaboration mm-hmm. where competition is no longer as interesting as collaboration. You use this word, that's beautifully said too, this word extraction as well. Yeah, I just want to kind of articulate that in the way that I think you're speaking to it as I almost hear this um, like a recognition and re- reaffirming. I think that's sort of the quality I'm hearing versus, you know, extraction from like a, you know, resource extraction kind of kind of energy. And I'd love for you just to define that a little further. Yes. Thank you, brother. And yes, it's not about extorting or exploiting. We can take this into that that energy of our internal feminine, that leadership where it can delegate by way of locating the highest qualities of something and championing that cheerleading that saying, you know, what's more interesting about you to me, it's not this deprivation and the harm or the insecurity. It's something you just told me, your gift, your quality. That's more interesting. Let's have a discussion about that. Let's make that more interesting and more important. That's that sacred extraction. Mm, Beautiful. And when you speak now of appreciation and, you know, again, I think we can look at both 
coming to internally um, appreciate the masculine and feminine qualities, as you've said. Like, you know, for example, even I, I still struggle, of course, to understand. Uh, and this even came through in a medicine ceremony a little while ago, and I talked about it to one of uh, the previous episodes of the podcast. But I had this recognition, like I could sit outside and deeply um, testify to that masculine intellectual side that was just confused or bewildered about the emotional side, <laughs> right? And I even, even what came through for me in that ceremony was uh, I even said it out loud. I said, what are the point of emotions? <laughs> like from a, from a deeply, you know, too faithful to that confused side. And, um, and I love the way you've been speaking about to understand them as resources, right? Yes. To understand them as, I mean, a, a power of, of also where orientation can come from. I think some of the aspects you've been saying and to come back into this original trust that actually, uh, that the, the, there's deep value, you know, distinct from maybe I would say externally um, representations of that. For example, like in a, in a domination culture, those qualities are not valued or prized, right? Like for a man to be emotional, you know, even a lot of women would, would likely critique a man who's too emotional, you know, quote, too emotional in a domination culture. So it's like, we're kind of in this hybrid moment, right? Where we're needing to kind of embody different cultural integrity uh, and yet at the same time are not often credited for it or at least appreciated for it uh, by others that actually can't meet those places in themselves or are still deeply traumatized by domination culture. Yes. And and when one limits themselves, and I'll just speak from experience, when I have limited my own emotional experience, when I have limited my capacity of emotional expression, I was doing just that. I was limiting how I was expressing myself. And so I became very rigid. I was very rigid rather than clarifying by way of what's most honest. And I want to share something that I've noticed in patriarchy and something in patriarchy that's really peculiar is that we hold something uh, higher than truth. Um, and that's called comfort. Hmm. Comfort is the apex of the doctrine from what I've witnessed and how I've engaged in patriarchy and this, and let me explain it a little further because comfort is not always pleasant. The other word for comfort is what's familiar. And then let's take that a little further familiar for the sake of what control. So I know how to prepare for something. It may not be pleasant, but at least I know what to expect. I know how to prepare for it. And so comfort has been held higher in esteem than even truth. Hmm. You know, you made me think of as well this relationship between fear and control, right? Because, you know, I think it's maybe it's true to say that if you're in a moment or an encounter and there's something that you're in fear of, you know, perhaps rightly so is, you know, naturally you'd want to control it, right? Or you'd want to control your sense of safety. Uh, and so I see this playing out in, you know, the cultural realm where the power of, uh, let's say an emotional experience or emotionally expressed woman uh, coming from that deep place of, you know, access um, can create a lot of fear, right? In men that are like, whoa, I don't know how to deal with this. And so there's a natural instinct to try to control, to, you know, try to suppress uh, in a, in a sense, yeah, to maintain a level of comfort, 
right. in the way that I think you've been speaking, a, a sense of familiarity of like, okay, well, we don't do this or this is how we do things. And so, yeah, it requires a kind of stepping outside and, and meeting in a way that is engaged, is curious, um, and is surrendered, I guess I hear as well, right? Because mm-hmm. you have to, you just to not control something, you have to be in a surrendered state, you know, in a, in a sense that's present, but also, um, not hovering over or not trying to dominate. It's yes, Ian, and it's called risk. It's called risk. And we get to all take risk. There's this beautiful quote, uh, Ian, that I would love to share. And it's a beautiful quote uh, correlating to like love, romance, uh, that I find really interesting. And that is, true love is allowing someone to absolutely destroy you, but trusting that they won't. And that's, yeah, that's the, the ultimate risk. And, and when the, this wounded masculine, uh, has to control how it's being perceived, it's going to create a lot of decoys and the decoys and the distractions will be deceptive. And so, uh, there's going to be a tendency to isolate. And why would we isolate? Because we need relief, relief from all the performing. And so we go into dissociation when the antidote, the resolution is just to be clear, honest, and upfront and take the risk of whatever that response will be. Hmm. Well, you know, you spoke of this, yeah, this performing masculine or or men in a culture of performance and how exhausting that is uh, to uphold. But also, you know, this, this tragedy in a way. Um, you know, I'm thinking of a, a former guest, Pat McCabe. She's an indigenous grandmother, you know, such an incredible wisdom holder who spoke of this image. She said that uh, men are the architects of the dream. Was something that she said, right? And it was just, it's just too good. But, and from my understanding, you know, we see a culture at large here that is essentially building, you know, the Tower of Babel uh, to nowhere or, or, you know, to an image of the divine. Meanwhile, the earth itself is, you know, deeply in need of intimacy and the tragedy of that, I guess, that that this, you know, the quest that men are sort of commissioned into is just completely disoriented or non-oriented in the way that that energy and that eros uh, that I see could be put in service, right, to the very things that would give fulfillment that so many men long for is to be just deeply in service. Um, and so this is this compounded tragedy, it seems, to look out. And then, of course, the consequence of blaming let's say individuals, which, you know, accountability is really important responsibility, but when there's no cultural forms, right, for penetrating that amnesia, uh, it can be very difficult to do it alone. Yes, most certainly. And I love that uh, this elder spoke of masculine energy as the architect of a dream. And I, I, that resonates so deeply with me. Uh, and we take it back to one of my translations of the masculine as that verb, that to which incites the action to create the structures. And for me, one of the greatest things that's happened in my life is when I no longer just merely acknowledge my masculine as an engineer, which can be quite sterile. Like, okay, we'll just build for the sake of building or for the sake of necessity. Mm-hmm. It's when my masculine transitioned from an engineer into an artist, into an artist. And then things became infused with meaning that I became invested in, in, in the meaning of things and, and it became intimate to me. And, and because I was so proud of the structures I was creating and it was so meaningful to me, I want nothing more than to share it as a contribution. Mm. 
Hmm. I hear in you um, speaking to this, uh, I mean, beyond aesthetic, or maybe aesthetic is part of it, is this understanding of to to see or to behold beauty as a value, right? As a value. And, I, uh, you know, I look out at the general, you know, average city, and you see the same box stores, and you see the same, you know, bland apartments. And, you know, it was Charles Eisenstein, another fellow um, friend of mine who I interviewed, and he spoke in one of his articles. He's like, is this the pinnacle of of human beauty making? You know, now in you know twenty, let's say twenty two, a Costco. You know what I mean? Like, like it's like it's clear, <laughs> it's clear that we have the capacity for it to be different, right? It's clear that we have the capacity to make it, like unimaginably beautiful things. I mean, you go to a place like Burning Man, which you might have been, uh, you know, with the art there alone, the fantastical art is just so mind blowing. Particularly when you realize, you know, you come home, most people, right? And then they just exist in the day-to-day. And chances are, um, in most places, that it's just soul-crushingly uh, boring in terms of the, the beauty that could be made, right? And so that that gap between, wait a second, like, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we spending all this time, you know, just making beauty because we we love life so much, right? And we we appreciate each other so much. So, you know, so there's that the grief in that, but also a sense of possibility. Mm, yes, yes. And thank you so much for speaking into the power of beauty and, and how important it, it is now. It's really how we translate our experience. And, you know, we can even feel ourselves as these cosmic beings who have been placed in a phenomenal animate world. And perhaps one of the purposes of this entire experience is how we choose to translate the energy of God, of cosmic consciousness, of the nucleus. And when we're creating structures of war, is that really the translation of God? Is that really the translation of God? Mm-hmm. And so maybe we can infuse more meaning. We can infuse more beauty in how we're translating into a phenomenal animate world. We are artists. Mm. I love that. Would you speak a little of how the the role of cultural forms and practices um, essentially because my understanding is that this is part of the function is that is to remind is to essentially bring bring about a kind of um recognized pattern within a people's right to to constantly yeah bring each other back or to appreciate you know for i'm just one example is when i was in that community in portugal called tamara which is sort of a a european uh, they're german mostly who've sort of tried to revive essentially like a partnership culture based on uh, sort of a neo-pagan earth-based lineage you know like their their neolithic lineage and so what they've tried to do right is try to reawaken a number of these rituals for them and one of the rituals was essentially the men and women singing to each other right across mm. the fire at one point and yeah and i'll say for me you know being present to that was it was just so wrecking me right that oh that this is a thing that could happen and does happen and and you know intact cultures do this kind of thing it just was so beyond the kind of personal uh like it was clear it was like a transpersonal participation like i was part of this cultural form instead of just me personally and i feel like so many people that grow up outside of these cultural forms don't really have a reference point for that that kind of function of what culture is because they might just see culture as oppressive or um, you know, in the past or stagnant. And yet I'd be curious for you to speak of in, you know, your lineage, what are the, some of the cultural forms that you've experienced that encode or, you know, express these qualities of, you know, remembering of, of appreciation of each other, this kind of thing. Yeah. And 
Thank you for sharing. And I'd love to share something really unique about the Hawaiian culture, is specifically our language, is that we, uh, up until uh, the uh, arrival of the missionaries, uh, about 150 years ago or so, we didn't have a written language. And that's not because we didn't have the skill to cultivate a written language. Mm-hmm. It's because we purposely felt that you had to speak it. Otherwise, it's going to be mistranslated because it has everything to do with the inflections, with the tones coming out from your heart, your pu'uvai and your na'au, your that sacral area, the feminine and the masculine. And in fact, in the ancient days, we didn't do much speaking because we did more dancing, movement. And the purpose of that is because when we communicate, it must be fully embodied. Every aspect of our body must move so that we are responsibly and fluently uh, sharing this true essence of what we want to convey. And kula, which is Hawaiian dancing, is still very vibrant today. And I would love the audience and even you, my brother, to just imagine uh, 200 years ago, uh, you wouldn't hear much voices. You would just see people dancing often to convey how they feel about one another. And this was uh, the primary method of how we expressed. And we can even take it back to, wow, that's sensuality. That's sensuality, especially when we know the men did this just as much as the women. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that stirs just an image of that, you know, that, that, that being a primary form of communication and how distinct that is. Right. And even you named a sense of the, the capacity to write things down. Right. But choosing not to like yeah. that cultural intelligence, especially how hard that is to see in a, in a dominant culture that is, you know, seduced by the myth of progress and that the current version of everything is the best version. Right, that this, or, or maybe to say that it's a linear progression. Right, that uh, oh, people who di- who had you know more oral tradition, that's because they eventually are going to get to where we are, you know, written language, and because that's better, as opposed to no, 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 they decided not to because they saw the consequence, uh, and they knew it wasn't better for them. Like yeah, that, that's even an unthinkable thought to a culture that believes you know it's the best, and and the current is the universal uh, top version of everything. So. <laughs> Right. And, and it has so much to do with presence as well. I could write you a letter, but I won't be present when you read that letter. That's problematic in the ancient Hawaiian culture. And so that exchange must be done in real time. It's really important. Otherwise, the possibility of mistranslation is so vast. I mean, we see in the digital age, uh, we, if we don't use the proper emoji, it turns from, uh, text of affection into a hostile text. So there's all these opportunities for mistranslations. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really beautiful um, example as well. Uh, Maybe, you know, I'm thinking of Marshall McLuhan as well. He's a sort of a famous Canadian um, sort of media uh, uh, commentator. But of course, the famous line is, the medium is the message, Mm. right? That the the medium, the way, the, the, how it's delivered is actually perhaps even more important than quote, what is said. And so I hear in what you're saying, you know, imagine the medium is dancing. It's just completely different than, you know, sending a text. <laughs> mm, yes. <laughs> yes. You know, I'd love to circle back to a few more things. And I'm deeply appreciating our, 
our conversation today. And um, you spoke about in that episode again, which I highly recommend everybody go listen to on the right relationship between the masculine and feminine. Um, but you spoke about this idea of uh, consent and authority, you know, around, uh, I believe it's the feminine, you know, and the masculine. And like, these are really just important aspects that I just wanted to touch on, you know, before we head towards the close of our conversation today. Yeah, thank you. And consent is something that I find is fundamental and basic and something that uh, modern cultures have forgotten. That's it's a fundamental aspect of especially how we interact. And, and this is not only how we interact with others, but it's also the consent to which we uh, bless ourselves with. And, uh, you know, as as many of us deem ourselves channels of remembrance of memory. Uh, I also love to encourage and remind our brothers and our sisters that you have every right to offer the consent for what streams through you. We all have the right of boundaries because if we're shutting down because we don't have boundaries, how are we going to make contributions that are meaningful and that have longevity? And so first and foremost, we can enforce and implement and bless ourselves with that understanding that we deserve consent. I deserve consent. And then we can approach a community, a collective, and honor that in our interactions with others. Consent is very, very important. Mm. Would you say in this context as well, consent is a sort of a, like a yes to something or to a situation or to a moment or even, as you say, bestowing on oneself? Like, um, yeah, sort of a, an original worthiness, I suppose, is, is kind of what comes up for me. Yes, I love that. Original worthiness by way of clarifying one's availability. Mm. What is one available? What am I available for at this very moment? And as I express that I'm simultaneously offering a consent because now I'm clear about what I'm available for. And I love to share this about sacred boundaries because boundaries is like a trigger word I've noticed in modern culture. But however, this is how I know boundaries to be in my own personal life. Boundaries are more parts invitation than it is rejection because I'm clarifying how I am available. Mm. I hear that uh, there was another uh, body of work, I think on Instagram, a fellow who's like a somatic therapist or something, but was saying that when we override our own limits, then, you know, we diminish our own capacity for contribution. I hear it in what you're saying. And in fact, often it can breed resentment, right? And and really like a lack of... um, engagement, like full engagement in whatever it is that we're, we're doing. And it's interesting, of course, now to look at the culture at large and to see that that's basically the entire modus operandi, right? Is essentially keep going, push through, uh, you know, nine to five, like essentially the, you know, the whole thing is essentially constructed in order to uh, continue momentum, I suppose. Yes. Right. And how, and, and the consequence of that, you know, that, which, you know, can be overt and of course, subtle, on almost every layer of really the, for example, the art of contact or the art of intimacy, I see as one of the number one qualities needed is time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, to slow down, you know, to, to be present um, and to allow whatever that moment is to unfold or even within oneself, right? To be able to even attune enough to say, oh, okay, what is on my limit right now? Or what am I available for? Uh, uh, and how hard that is, right? In the dominant culture. It so is, Ian. And, you know, personally for me, I I like to say it like this. If I'm not enjoying 
what I'm doing, if I say something, if I say I'm going to do something, but I'm not enjoying it and I'm not embodying it, this is what my kupuna, my elders used to say, boy, because they always call me boy, boy, if you cannot embody that to which you say, then say less. <laughs> because just as you're saying, Ian, let's show up in integrity. Our yeses are yeses and our noes are noes. There's nothing complex about that. In order to have the nose, we must forego the seduction of inadequacy, a feeling that somehow I'm inadequate if I insert a no somewhere. But then we go into resentment and bitterness, just as you say. How can we have intimacy if we're resenting? And so therefore, boundaries, my nose are more parts invitation than they are rejection because I'm clarifying how I can show up in my highest integrity. Hmm. I'm curious how this intersects with, I mean, again, if this is a, either a masculine trait or um, burden in, in a sense, but burden in a sense of, of contribution or, or, for example, how much men are asked to carry, you know, for example, in, in harder labors, uh, by labors meaning, you know, kinds of work or supporting a family, uh, it, you know, ways in which it's you know, parenting, like all the ways in which I'm constantly asked to show up past my boundaries in this case, but it's from a place of deep service, you know, for my son or my family. Uh, and I wonder again, how those intersect, uh, and particularly even around ceremony, you know, for example, um, rites of passage where discomfort is actually part of the alchemy, right? To like put oneself and particularly say a young man in a situation where he's pushed beyond his physical comfort in order to crack through, uh, you know, maybe a youthful ego structure into something else. And so, again, I wonder where, where is like the discernment for choosing to go beyond uh, or, or to be put in situations, culturally speaking, for example, because it's in service to something greater. Mm-hmm. I, I like to take us to this word and the understanding of the word potential. If one truly understands their potential, perhaps they won't question when they're uh, gifted situations, circumstances, environments, and interactions to which they have a capacity to complete. Uh, the flip side of that is, remember, resourcing that feminine so that we can negotiate, we can delegate and say, can everyone share their potential right now? Let's collaborate right now because I'm at a capacity that I'm not comfortable with. I'm at a capacity that's going to take me to a place where I'm no longer going to be available for intimacy. But if one understands their own potential, truly understands their own potential, then you begin to honor that potential and you can go to those maximum capacities, complete something without feeling that you have overextended yourself. If at that point there feels like there's going to be an overextension, then we can begin to negotiate with the potentials that exist around us and then start to bring in a collaboration. Mm. Well said. What do you see as your mission in all of this? You know, because you speak of it, you know, so well, eloquently and well, and I see the way you show up, you know, on social media and uh, in here, and I'm deeply appreciating your, you know, precise articulation, heart, heart centered. And I wonder, yeah, can you speak to what is, what is your mission and service to like, what do you see as the, what you're contributing to in the wider picture? Oh, thank you, Ian. So remember, I, I shared my grandmother's name, Koike Onalani, and uh, in her name is coded her kiakahi, her purpose. 
I also have a purpose uh, coded in my name. My name is Keoni Hanalei, and it means the spiral has hurled forth. Now, when I translate that name poetically, it means to simplify the otherwise inconceivable. And like I was sharing, there's distractions everywhere. And many of us are caught up in this distraction, this distraction. We're not completing things. And so my gift, my mission, as you, as you share, is to guide, activate, remind people how to create this coherency to simplify that which is otherwise deemed inconceivable. When you're doing it. (laughs) 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 Beautiful. I wonder, is there a chant or something that is appropriate to offer in a context like this? You know, one that that speaks to, yeah, maybe what we've spoken to, or at least to maybe as a prayer for the closing of our conversation. Yeah. You know, respectfully, is there, is there something that might be present and come through? I would love to. Thank you for this invitation, Ian. Uh, so I, I, of course, I know Hawaiian language, but I know a language that is very uh, uh, not well uh, widely known, and that's the Mu Hawaiian dialect. And my grandmother uh, was very versed in it, and so she taught me many of the Mu prayers, the Mu prayers. And I would love to share a Mu prayer, and then I will translate it in English for you and the audience. And when we utter a prayer, we go into a position. It's like a mudra called kulike, and kulike means right relation. So we would place our right hand over our heart, pu'uvai, the throne of the masculine. We will place our left hand over the sacral, the na'au, the throne of the feminine. Here in kulike, in right relation. To be entangled in that which is unnatural, now I rise, exposed and brilliant, finally, and to penetrate in illusion, finally, finally. Aloha ma. Mm. Wow. Beautiful. Hello. Thank you, brother. Mahalo, Ian. I'm deeply grateful for our conversation today, Keone. As am I. Thank you so much. Thank you to you, Brother Ian, and thank you to this audience. Mm. I'll share uh, links to your work and the website or Instagram and all that, you know, after. And uh, is there anything else you want to speak to or invite the listeners to? I would just love to invite the listeners to allow your emotions to be as friendly as possible. Hmm. Just allow yourself to relax into your emotional experience and just see what happens. Magical things will happen. This is how lives become changed. Hmm. Mahalo, brother. Oh, you froze for a second, but I think, did you say a response there? (laughs) Uh, Aloha and mahalo. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mythic Masculine Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please visit any of the major podcast platforms and leave a review. This helps spread the word and reach a wider audience. Thanks for the consideration. Until next time.